Hello, and welcome to Spectology, the science fiction book club podcast. I'm your host, Adrian. And I'm Charlotte. Uh, this month on Spectology, as we do every month, we've picked a new book, we're reading it, it, and we're going to talk about it. This month, our guest is Charlotte Geeter. Uh, she's a long, I think you've been listening from the beginning of the podcast, um, so a long-time listener, um, works in the publishing world, and earlier on Twitter, what a few months ago you had mentioned wanting to read more obscure science fiction, and I was like, oh great, we should have some of that on here. <laughs> so, um... This month, we are reading the book uh, Rupetta by N.A. Solway or Nike Solway. In different places, you'll see her name um, kind of listed in different ways. Uh, yeah, but it's a kind of like a historical, weird science fiction, fantasy, genre-y type of book um, that Charlotte picked for us uh, that looks really cool. I'm really excited to read it and um, talk more about it. Uh, also, as you've probably noticed, Matt isn't here this month. He has a bunch of real life like tests and stuff he has to do for call it for his uh, classes, not college, but his classes. Um, so, uh, yeah, he won't be joining us for this. He may or may not join us for the post read. It's a little bit unclear. Hopefully we'll have a couple of like short episodes with him in between our usual bonus stuff. But um, yeah, so for this month, uh, it's going to be me and Charlotte uh, mainly. Uh, yeah. So to begin, Charlotte, do you just want to say like, you know, a little bit about yourself, who you are uh, and your you know experience with science fiction generally? Yeah. Um, so um, I'm English. Um, I live in London in the UK um, and I work for a really small press called the Emma Press, um, which I've worked for, for about a year now. Um, and we mostly publish poetry. So my background is mostly in poetry. I've been writing and publishing poetry since I was a teenager um, and I'm in my late 20s now. So for more than a decade. Um, and, and we publish a kind of mixture of children's poetry, literature and translation, and I'm trying to move this slightly more towards speculative. So we've got a book coming out next year that's like queer Scottish fairy tales for kids, um, (laughs) which is, which is great. Um, and we're trying to get that into every school in Scotland. Um, and at various points it's looked like we might, may or may not be able to publish like steampunk tales, like from Denmark I think in translation but I'm not sure if that's happening but yeah so it's really fun um it's my friend's company um and we're afloat <laughs> we're we're going as, as long as we can go so yeah okay, I mean that's better um, than some publishing companies so. well quite it's 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 not you know it's it's a hard industry to be in I previously worked for a company that published a mixture of like mind body spirit and cookbooks and I worked for them for like two years and they got sold once while I was working there and they've since been sold again in like the past five years. And so I was briefly working with the same company that owned Angry Robot books. And I was kind of, who were a sci-fi publisher and I was kind of like, oh, Angry <laughs> Robot. But they're no longer owned by the same company, I don't think, because that's how publishing goes. Right, right. Cool. And um, so what drew you to Rupetta, the book we're reading initially? Um, have you read it before? Actually, I'm curious. No, I haven't. Um, but so I was very glad I did love it um, <laughs> when, when reading it. Um, so I Rupetta won the James Tiptree Award back in 2013, mm-hmm. which is an award that's administered by some people who are associated with WizCon, which is the um, feminist science fiction convention that happens in Wisconsin, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, not somewhere I've ever been able to get to, <laughs> even though I dream of it. Um 
and um, and and the award um awards books that kind of talk about stuff like gender and um sexuality and disability actually no i don't think it's particularly about disability i think it's just about gender right. and sexuality it's specifically gender and sexuality yeah yeah um and so um yeah it won it back in 2013 but it hadn't it didn't seem to have that much attention paid to it even though it had won this award because it's published by a really tiny press um i'm particularly interested in small press stuff (laughs) because of my background um it's published by a really tiny press based in yorkshire uk but the author is australian Mm -hmm. um and yeah and it just seemed like weirdly neglected um and i think i'd come across a review somewhere by a few writers i like have kind of reviewed it or have like got it on goodreads um and i think i was like oh this sounds really interesting i'd like to read this and for a long time, I thought it was unavailable because it was originally published as a hardback, like 500 editions. Mm-hmm. And if you want to get a hardback, it's like £100 secondhand. And so I was like, oh, I'm never going to be able to read this. And then I discovered it was an ebook quite cheaply. And I was like, oh, OK, right. <laughs> here we go. Yeah. And that's the I think that's the only version available in the States, at least anywhere that I saw is the ebook version. But it is available yeah. both in the UK and the States, which is usually sort of our, our criteria of like whether we <laughs> yes. can do the book or not. Is it available in those two areas? <laughs> yes. Um, I think it is also out in paperback now, but the paperback seems expensive and difficult to hold of as well, although not as much as the hardback. Anyway, it's it's an ebook. Um, yeah, it, it just sounded really cool. And it's about um, a mechanical woman. I don't know if you want me to go into what it's about. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so uh, for the listeners who might be new this time, uh, in this pre-read episode, we don't normally do spoilers much of any sort. Although, of course, like what a spoiler is depends on who you are in the book and the, you know, the texture, all that kind of stuff. So uh, we generally try to be fairly plot light and spoiler light and as free as possible. But, you know, if you're someone like Matt, uh, my usual co-host who doesn't like any spoilers whatsoever he doesn't even read the back cover of books then yeah so you know from that from that perspective like it's fine the back cover text is is fair game i would say as our rules yes okay so um so yeah and it's about a mechanical woman who is um built created in early 17th century france and um and that sounded really cool to me because i'm really interested in historical I'm really interested in like historical fantasy. That's a genre I read a lot of and like kind of alternate history type stuff. Um, and this had a slightly more... So it's kind of science fiction and fantasy and historical all in one. And I don't tend to read that much historical science fiction. It's not like a combination that you come across that much. Right. So I was like, oh, this sounds very cool. Um, and it is. Yeah, I had to rack my brain a little bit for like later we'll do some, you know, what are similar yeah. books kind of discussion. And I had to to sit down and get a little bit, you know, think harder than I normally do for the historical science fiction, which I like. So I came up with a few books that I like have been really big fans of. So I'll be happy to talk about that. Um, I, I think that's actually kind of a good segue into um, kind of talking about the book a little bit more in depth. But um, just before then, is there anything else that you want to plug i know you talked about the emma press anything else that that we should listeners should know about you or anything along those lines um 
if if listeners are interested in poetry, I've just been shortlisted for a UK poetry award called um, the White Review Poets Prize, um, which they're going to announce the winner next month. So I guess when this goes out, the winner might well have already been announced. And it's probably not going to be me because there are eight shortlisted people. Um, but if you look at the White Review Poets Prize, you can read a poem that I wrote called Bangable Dudes in History. <laughs> <laughs> well... Congrats and good luck both both on that. That's excellent. That's really cool. I'll look that up here. Yeah. Cool. So um, I think we talked a little bit kind of about why we chose the book. Uh, I, I will say from, you know, my standpoint, too, it sounds really interesting. I mean, kind of like you were talking about, it is very different, I think, from any of the other books that we've read on this podcast, which tend more towards, you know, not the hard science fiction in terms of like slower than light speed travel kind of thing, but in terms of these very like, you know, space and aliens kind of thing. And one thing that I have personally just always really liked about speculative fiction um, is the breadth of, of what that can mean. And so I think this is a really you know, when you mentioned, I think you mentioned this in like one or two other books, of which I had read before, but this to me really stood out as, um, yeah, like something very different from what I have experience with. And so like really exciting to me with that, we should talk a little bit about the book itself from the, you know, as Matt would say, the book facts perspective. Mm. Um, so yeah, we've said it's Rupetta by, I think this was published under N.A. Solway, but she has yes. also published books under either Nike Solway or N.A. or Nicole Bork. I've seen like like N.A., yes. Nike, Nicole, and both Solway and Bork as her last name. So there's been sort of like some confusion. I know now she goes by Nike Solway like on her like in her day job and on her blog and uh, at the, she works for, uh, for the university of Southern Queensland in Australia. And she also goes as Nike Solway on like that website. So it seems to have like, <laughs> I don't know what the story there is with her name or, or any of that. I'm actually kind of curious, but I didn't see anything about that, but there is, you know, I think it, at some point she had multiple like publishing identities cause she's published kind of a range of fiction. I saw, some like adult literary fiction, some kids books, the Rupetta, which I think is the most speculative of all of them. Have you read any of her other books or her poetry or anything? Um, I haven't read any of her other books. I have looked at some of her poetry um, online, um, but I don't think she's published any books of it or anything. So, mm -hmm. um, so this is mostly what I've read by her. But yeah, it is interesting that she seems to... It doesn't seem like she does the same genre or the same type of thing more than once. Um, right. I mean, she must do, but just maybe not have published it yet. Because, um, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> because I would very much like her to do more speculative stuff. And in interviews that I've read, she's talked about, you know, other projects, other speculative projects she's working on, I think. But yeah. Oh, very cool. Yeah, it's interesting, too, because her like academic work focuses on folk tales and fairy tales and that kind of stuff, which, you know, obviously aren't science fiction, but still have this kind of speculative core to them. Um, and in particular, she looks at gender and femininity hmm. and like queerness in these fairy tales and folk tales, like I did throughout a historical time period. Um, so that's that's really interesting. I think that, you know also speaks to the main themes of Rupetta, which, you know, seems to be about like this built woman and like her womanness is a very important piece of the, of the story. Um, yeah. 
yeah, and it was published, like you said, in 2013. I guess it's a UK press. I didn't realize that. So it's based in Yorkshire, but she is Australian. So yes. that's confusing. <laughs> like more yes. confusion on the whole thing. Um, and for some of the subgenres, I mean, it's definitely like we've talked about this kind of like element of like fantasy and science fiction. Um, it's clearly like a feminist text that's set in a historical time period. So there's elements of historical and alternate history kind of fiction going on with it. Um, and I also noticed that she is, you know, we'll, we'll talk later about some of the interviews that uh, we read with her, but they were done some of, at least one of them in the weird fiction review. And so I'm curious if you get some of that kind of like weird fiction vibe coming from her as well. I think so. Um, yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it's a good mix of kind of the nexus point between all three, really, kind of like fantasy, sci-fi and um, weird fiction. I'm doing a gest- gesture as if people will be able to see it where I'm like interlocking my fingers. Um, because there's something kind of, at times, there's something kind of monstrous about um, about this like mm. mechanicalness. Um, mm-hmm. And um, and she talks in interviews and stuff, well, I won't go into detail, but she talks in interviews and stuff about... Um, how she doesn't focus so much on like the science or the technology of how the life works and but and and she talks about that in terms of it being like a fairy tale and it kind of is but there's also something really creepy kind of eerie about it at times especially as 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 the mechanical life relates to um human life there's a lot of places in which they kind of go together kind of messily or less so in the book um and and um, I think about that a lot when it comes to weird fiction, kind of like horror, but kind of like a horror that you can't quite comprehend. And there's something about that. And and the book is like really preoccupied with death um, <laughs> and life, um, but uh, life as it kind of relates to death and whether or not death is kind of needed for life. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I and, feel like yeah. those are often kind of themes of, you know, we, we think of fairy tales now as like, oh, fun mm. Disney versions, right? But I mean most of these tales have these really kind of like dark undertones to them, especially in the initial folk telling because they're, you know, more or less like allegories about like what not to do because the world is dangerous. Um, you know, they're stories about all the different things that can kill you. Um, yeah. And so that seems to jive. Uh, like I always think of weird fiction as an outgrowth as much of like, you know, science fiction and other genre fiction fantasy as it is of like Grimm's fairy tales and these other kind of, you know, more like weird witchy folktale type stuff. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, and, and there's also the book is also often preoccupied with nature um, and kind of the outside, like wild world, in a way that reminds me of um, of, of a lot of kind of contemporary weird fiction is like really like Jeff Vandermeer, um, mm-hmm. who, who um, I haven't read any of his novels yet. I keep meaning to read Born, but I know that he is very preoccupied with like ecology um, and environmental stuff. Um, and there's a lot of like kind of background of like there's a lot about like nature versus like the mechanical, right. Um, in the book and whether or not they are actually versus each other and like whether or not there's like a binary there. Um, yeah. Very cool. And there's a lot about botany. <laughs> um, <laughs> rather, not necessarily like environmental fiction, but yeah, there's a lot about um, growing plants and um, 
and there's a lot about like growing native plants versus growing like imported plants because part of the book is set in oh, in, in i think southern queensland um but with like european influence so like right. oh we're all trying to grow these european plants but they don't actually like the soil here right and i guess that fits in with this whole like you know kind of like feminist folk tales often are about witches in one way or another and mm. you know that's the sort of like male dominated idea of just like a woman who is smart at growing plants and knows how to use them is thus like has dangerous knowledge um yeah and so that 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 all makes a lot of sense that that would fit together um i guess at this point too we should probably also just talk about content warnings we try to do this for both the like book as well as the um discussion we're about to have i don't imagine there's going to be too much in our discussion um but is there is there any like i know you haven't finished the book but is there anything in particular that you'd maybe like want people to know before reading it you know content warnings that they should be aware of um if so i always worry that i'm going to miss something but i i don't think there are any particular content warnings we usually do miss things so this is more like doing our best yeah. not being perfect yeah, yeah. <laughs> um i don't think there's anything major there is some discussion um of like institutional torture mm -hmm. um not not in like great detail but um but a lot of the book is about like um historical research and it comes up in historical research and it gets discussed a bit um and there's stuff about kind of people in power being corrupted by power and doing bad things with power mm -hmm. um in a way that if that's something you, yeah it might be something people just want to keep in mind um when they're going in and you know it deals a lot of death um, right there's the kind of morbid yeah, piece I, of it but yeah i, I don't it, i don't think there there's nothing like particularly like gory or violent in the way that i think mm. I, ho I, I hope not <laughs> yeah okay great cool and then so um like we mentioned it uh won the james tiptree jr award i think it was also i can't remember if it won or if it was nominated for the nora k hemming award which is an australian award for uh marking excellence in the exploration of themes of race gender sexuality class or disability in speculative that fiction that is what I was thinking of when I said disability relating to the James Tiptree. I was like, right. wait, no, I'm thinking of the other one. <laughs> yeah, I'm afraid. I thought it had won, but maybe it was just shortlisted. I think, I think it did. I just didn't mark it down in my notes. Um, I always think I'm going to remember stuff later, and then I don't, obviously. Um, right, and like you were saying earlier, the James Tiptree Jr. Award is uh, named after, or is given out by WizCon. It is named after Alice Sheldon slash James Tiptree Jr., which was her um kind of nom de plume that she she published under um as a woman writing in i guess like the 60s and 70s she like many women did kind of like uh you know instead of just like using her um initials or in other ways hiding it she actually like created kind of a male name and identity for herself to publish under um and when she uh it came out is kind of a weird way of putting that but when it became known that she was a woman there were a lot of discussions around like oh what does it mean to have women writing science fiction this kind of stuff um and so WizCon named the award after her after alice sheldon but after her um you know kind of like male identity and male counterpart um to to kind of draw attention to this as the type of fiction that they focus on and um i would generally say that the james tiptree award is interesting like i went back and i looked through a lot of their books um many of which i've read and i feel like there's a 
interesting mix of like good and not very good books in there. <laughs> it's like not necessarily an award that I would, um, you know, I feel like there are some awards that are like consistently like, Oh, that'll at least be interesting. This had this, for instance, one of the books that was mentioned was, um, the Sparrow won the James Tiptree Jr. Award, which I'm not really sure why, because there's actually very little about gender at all in it outside of being like fairly gender normative in a lot of weird ways. Um, but it is, it is, I, there are other books that I, I've really loved who, that have won it. Um, so it's kind of, it's kind of interesting to see this like paired in there, especially being that it is such a, small book that didn't get any attention in any of the other like major science fiction awards so it can do this work of like actually highlighting books that you know i otherwise would have never heard of or you know had had any way of saying like oh is this going to be good or not yeah well that honor list and the kind of list of like commended text as well is really interesting so um anyone can basically submit something for tip tree consideration um and then then they will look at it um which is i think partly how they can basically honor or award anything so there are a lot of awards where like the publishers have to pay a lot of money and send books in and, it, and it's difficult to do um but that's not the case with the tip tree and i think maybe last year or the year before there was a big um, marvel fanfic got was on like the list oh that's didn't win the award but um yeah this this came out and i was like oh because it was just on archive of our own the fan mm -hmm. fiction website um i i am afraid or well, not afraid i come into <laughs> fandom slightly through fan fiction spaces this was really interesting to me um it's not a fanfic i've read because it's like really long um and i don't really read marvel fanfic anymore but um yeah um so it, i think it is one of those awards where i will sometimes just set aside some time to like sit back and go through the honor lists rather than necessarily the winners because mm. i think i think the winners are a mix of books i'm interested in and books i'm not so interested in Although I was quite interested in reading The Sparrow until I heard um, <laughs> that you did not enjoy The Sparrow. And I was like, this sounds like maybe something to pass on for now. Well, you know, I hate telling people like not to read books. Um, but yeah. <laughs> it's, one, it's one of the, I, I think one of the problems with that book was it had won the James Tiptree Award. It had won uh, yeah. a few other awards. And I had heard like very, very good things like, oh, you like these other really thoughtful books about religion and science fiction, you'll really like this one. And then it was very mm. much not what I expected. Yeah, I'm sure without that, I would have been like, oh, that was fine. Instead of like, mm. oh, I really don't like you. Um, <laughs> I think um, too, you know, and I'm actually very curious how this book is going to handle sort of like any sense of like colonialism. Cause I know it takes place partially in Australia and it, you know, it has this like European setting. And, you know, that was one of the things I felt that the Sparrow did really bad was it's like whole thesis engaging with colonialism was like bad. <laughs> um, and so I'm yeah. really curious kind of about how, how this book will, will handle that. I think that's probably stuff we'll get into in the, in the next one. Um, yeah. But yeah, I guess, you know, moving on from that, it is, it's set in, France and Australia is that right yeah and so so it's it starts out in France in kind of like 1621 I think um and then it kind of moves forward and yeah the later section I have worked out is set in Australia it's never actually stated as far as I can tell mm -hmm. that it's in Australia but I think there are places named where if you google them I, I think I found out it was in France by googling the name of an animal and was like, oh, this is an animal for Australia <laughs> or the name of a plant. But I think there is a, there are actually places in Australia named. And it talks about colonies and, you know, people right. traveling. Um, so I was like, okay, this is either Australia or like somewhere else 
in like the quote unquote new world, like the colonized world from mm-hmm. Europe. Um, and the author is Australian, so I was kind of expecting it to be Australia. Um, I think right, it is. I think it's set sense. in Queensland. So cool, cool. And then um, I just for a formatting note, it is a standalone novel, so there's yeah. no sequels or anything like that, at least that I'm aware of. And it, it definitely tells a entire unique story and in one of the we'll we'll in the show notes we'll link to these interviews with the author that we read kind of Mm. coming into this but you know she specifically mentions in one of the interviews the characters feeling like dead to her because they were so alive and she was writing them and then she like finished writing it and so now it's like it's just something she can remember or read with you know just like a dead person was like oh that's a very (laughs) like kind of like a literally figurative way of thinking about that (laughs) yes yeah that that made me kind of sad but i was like okay that's how you work (laughs) right yeah she seems to think um you know in fairy tales almost in in a very kind of like literary way um reading reading these uh Actually, I'd recommend the the interviews. They were they were an interesting read um, before reading the book. I'm glad I read them. Um, yeah, and then just a little bit about Nike Solway. Like we mentioned, she is a senior lecturer of creative writing at the University of Southern Queensland. Her um, academic work focuses, like I think we said that on the yeah. like fairy tales and folk tales, and particularly the like queer and gendered elements in those tales um Mm. i've read nothing at all by her so this is you know completely new to me um you know uh charlotte you mentioned you'd read a couple of her poems which i think she mentioned she writes poems almost like more as an amateur than as a professional on like her other writing so that'll be yeah this came up in one of the interviews and my feeling as a poetry person is like that's basically how people who write poetry think i was like welcome (laughs) to the club but there's like there's like so many people who write poetry who are like oh i'm not a poet but i write poetry and it's fine but i'm like right it's one of those you know don't want to be a member of a club that will have me kind of situation (laughs) like always well i think it's more like oh i don't belong right like i'm not enough it's like that and everyone who has written a poem is enough so (laughs) yeah well i (laughs) i definitely don't feel that way about my poetry which i won't be showing anyone so (laughs) well if you want the club it's there (laughs) right that's fair that's fair um Cool. So yeah, so we've, you know, we've gotten a little bit into some of the themes that this book discusses already. Um, So do you kind of want to start off because we talk, you know, you have a lot of themes that I know you wanted to hit on kind of talking about history generally. And so I'd love for you to kind of like, start out with that. And then we can have more of a bit of a free flowing conversation about some of those as as we get going. Yeah, definitely. The book is kind of about... So one of the two main characters, there are kind of two um, narrations that kind of tell the story um, and they kind of alternate. Um, And one of the main characters who narrates one of those sections is a historian. So um, kind of a scholar starting out as an undergraduate, moving on to a graduate student. Um, And there's a lot about like the work of being an academic, about the work of being like a historian who's like, reading history books, writing essays, looking archives and doing lots of other stuff. Um, and I found that really interesting because often 
because often when you're reading a book where there's a character who's like a historian or a character talking about history there's a slightly more flat sense of what history means Mm. um it's like history is a thing that is passed down that you know um, and so there's a lot in this book about um, about different types and of history, like competing types. So um, so there's a lot about um, kind of like grand narratives of like official history that come down. Like um, when I said like grand narratives and official history, I'm doing like air quotes. <laughs> um, it's like I'm, I'm trying not to go into too many spoilers, but there's like particular things that people have been told about the history of the world they live in. And they're told that this is like the official truth. Um, and it's one of those things where as soon as this comes up, I'm like scribbling on the book, like, well, <laughs> like, like, I don't believe in there being an official truth. And and again, without going too many spoilers, the book is not necessarily disagreeing with me. Um, and then so the main character, um, who's a historian, um, her research interests are kind of straying more towards social history. Um, which is like a part of history that sometimes slash often contradicts like official history, but um, again with quotes, but in a lot of ways is kind of telling a story that's kind of very separate from a kind of overarching narrative. So, um, which is something that I find really interesting as an enthusiastic amateur who <laughs> likes to read about history. Um, I don't have a history degree or anything, although I have an English degree, but um, it's like very historical. <laughs> Um, so I kind of feel like I'm slightly coming at it with the background, but not really. Um, but one of the things that I find really interesting when reading history is reading social history or history from below. Um, history from below being like reading about people who are not in power, um, reading about um, kind of social movements and about kind of like quote unquote ordinary people. Um, I've been reading recently an overview of history from below that is in fact called history from below. Very cool. Um, but yeah, there's a lot about like working women like women who run schools and like kind of hedge witch types um i th- i i can't remember if the book actually uses the term hedge witches because it's not it's not like really a book about witches but that's kind of like the meaning um and yeah so i found that really interesting because so one of the things i think of when it comes to this book in particular is that um it almost treats history like a technology. Um, it kind of uses history in a speculative way. And I mean, history is a technology, right? right. Like, um, it's a thing that changes societies that has it in the same way that other types of technology do, much like writing is a technology and like printing is a technology. Like different ways of writing history are different types of technology. Right. Well, and this um, is something and- we talk a lot about. Like technology can both be like a physical object but also just like a new type of idea or a new type of way of thinking that is like has power in its own right and you know that way like language was a technology for like our earliest ancestors and Mm. you know writing was a technology that you know changed not just what you could do with language but actually how language works and how our brains work and how we think about things and let us you know kind of like you know do embodied cognition instead of just like cognition in our own head um you know, being able to do long division is like using a pen and paper to like remember stuff for you while you're doing division instead of having to keep it all in your head. Um, and in that way, I think it, what you're saying is that like history and the techniques of history and just even thinking about the past in a certain way changes the way we relate to the past and thus the way we relate to the yeah. present. Yeah. And I mean, the book is quite 
philosophical in that often the characters will literally be discussing that stuff. Um, mm-hmm. It doesn't feel too on the nose to me because the characters are students of history and professors <laughs> of history. So I'm like, all right, they probably will spend a lot of their time talking about history. Um, and they, do, they talk about other stuff too. So I think it, yeah, kind of pulls that off. But um, but yeah, it's very preoccupied with that and that stuff's very much on the surface. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and th- that's an interesting point too that you made earlier about... Um like low history. I'd actually never heard that term for it before this idea of, you know, like, but it is true that, you know, the way we normally think about history is the story, you know, of like, you know, great men, right. It's like the people in power and their stories, Um, you know, but I think at the same time, I, I don't know how different this is for like the British education system, but I think a lot of folks in America are actually, especially in my age cohort. So kind of like millennials and then younger um, are introduced to some of these concepts through Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States, which is actually very popular over here. And like I was taught it in high school. It was like one of the history texts that we had to read in high school. And I've talked to a lot of people, you know, my age and in our early 30s and younger for whom that is also true. So, you know, that that I think is actually something that, you know, when you're thinking about history, it's like the kind of difference between that and this idea of like telling the stories of like everyone who is living as opposed to telling the stories of like the government and how it changed over time and that those are you know two different very different ways of interacting with history and the you know there's this kind of idea Mm. of like it's often easier to know about the more powerful people because they leave more records like just just and when you come down to this idea of like oh there's the official passed down history and then there's having to do like sleuth work more or less to try to like piece out what happened because you know we live our lives and you know now that we have podcasts and everything like okay there's a historical record of me for the last year but you know but like before that, like that's not true of a lot of people. It's it's hard to actually suss out how people lived and stuff kind of gets lost really easily. Yeah, in fact, there's a bit where um where a character is having to like sort through some boxes with like records that have been neglected and they've been like left. They were kind of damp and then left in a kind of room by themselves for like six months and like some of them have been like, eaten by rats and mice and some of them, I assume, some of them are mouldy and it's just mm-hmm. like a matter of like literally trying to read the records mm-hmm. and that's very much like my college. Um, so I went to Oxford and um one of the things there is that like every college has its own library and there are like. 30 odd colleges um and then there are loads of other libraries so basically there are like 100 or more libraries right and then my college had an old library which hadn't had all this old stuff in that hadn't been catalogued so it's like who knows what it held (laughs) (laughs) um and it's like trying to like get in there to like see and like most of it's going to be like old books and like but you don't know what records it's going to have and like yeah it's just right right you don't There's know if anything's so going to be organized in a way where you can find it, even if you know it's there. Yeah, yeah. There's just so much that gets like neglected or like forgotten or lost. Um, and yeah, I think that's something the book is very um, aware of. It's a book that doesn't feel. Um, it's not. It's not content with just being like history is written by the victors. It's like what does that mean? And it like digs into it, which is really cool um, as a right nerd. Right. Because that is kind of like an easy and pat thing to say, but like it's actually a lot more complicated than history is written by the victors. Like history is written by people later. (laughs) And, you know, the records they have might be the victors records or they might not be. (laughs) Yeah. 
but but um, I think it's really interesting what you were saying about being taught um, the, a people's history of the United States. Um, in the UK, um, school's history, we're not really taught anything like that. Um, uh, I mean, my history education was is, it is largely like Tudors um, up until I, I did history through a sixth form, which is up till I was 18. And yeah, we studied a lot of like Tudors. And when we did like the English Civil War, there's a lot of like interesting social history elements to English of war we didn't cover that we were like Cromwell so it was very much like great men and then the social history we did was so you do a certain amount of like lives of men in the trenches in world war one but a lot of the history I did of social movements was of US history so we covered like the civil rights movement in America and the Vietnam war in America uh, I guess in Vietnam as well but you cover it very much from like a US perspective oh absolutely right um so yeah it was um it was a very weird um kind of it was a very weird angle to take um and i didn't find it super interesting in a way that i do find that kind of stuff i do find like reading history books and quasi-academic history texts more interesting now right yeah i do wonder if um and you know i'm going to speculate wildly about stuff that i you know don't know anything about really but um you know it like because we also in you know history class and everything learned about social movements but we actually learned a lot about social movements here right like we learned about the Mm. civil rights movements in america and we learned about the vietnam war in america and you know kind of jim crow you know and a lot of this stuff was really poorly taught in a lot of ways you know i mean like the like history class is like mostly propaganda and lies even still um but it is at least like there i feel like you know my history classes maybe i just had good teachers but you know they cared a lot about both the kind of like larger level like you know uh like systematic systemic history whatever you want to call that the kind of history of power as well as like well what is it like living in these different time periods and um you know in so much as i've ever read historical fiction which like i haven't read a whole lot of but i'm always interested when i do in this sort of um anthropological kind of focus on it and i've uh, so I took a few history courses in college. I didn't study history um, by any means. And I actually really enjoy reading like academic history books now. It's one of the like nonfiction genres that I read. Mm. And what I've always been interested in those is the books that are more about like what was life like for most people at any given time. And obviously like, you know, that can be like what was like life like for both powerful and like not powerful people you know what was life like across these different social spectra and how did those like you know different classes interact with each other and like that that history of class is really interesting to me um you know a couple of the books i think do that really well you know one is um 1491 by charles mann which you know talks about the native indigenous American populations before and like right after Columbus's like, you know, quote unquote discovery of the new world. Um, and you know, really get into this, like, well, what was it like living here? What kind of, you know, what was their civilization like? And there's also a lot of stuff in there just around like, well, how does the language that we use now color the way we think about it? And how, if you just like change the language, it totally changed the way you think about, think about it. So, you know, One thing that he does in that book is that he doesn't ever say, like, the chief. He always just says the king, right? And he just uses the same language we would apply to, like, European history to American history. And it's all of a sudden this, like, oh, yeah, that's right. Like, we use this really, like, weird alienating language. And that language itself puts you in this different mindset and kind of, like, it's almost infantilizing in a way. Um, Which is, you know, all to to, to tie it back a little bit. Um, 
you know, I think this kind of fiction and fiction that really deals with history as like not something that's just set in stone, not something that is like true or not true, but as like, you know, it's more about like what we can even know. Um, yeah. Like deals with these subjects in ways that it's like, it's actually really messy. Like we actually don't know a lot of stuff that we think we know. <laughs> yes. Yeah, there's there's a lot in here about like secrets and about like the unknowability of like certain things where people take secrets to their graves. Mm-hmm. Um and and that yeah, that's something that comes up a lot, especially when you're reading history of um of colonized peoples where like the, the yeah. people who colonized them like purposefully destroyed um a lot of like right. records and a lot of like their like culture and it's like um and, and then you know historians often from the dominant <laughs> or like colonial culture like you know hundreds of years later are like oh like speculating about like what this means and like oh mm-hmm. we want to work this out and it's like well yeah there are some things that you probably don't get to know right um, right and then and- on the flip side of that too another thing they'll do is just like discount oral history entirely yes. this happens a lot with native american communities where it's like you know archaeologists are constantly like rediscovering things that like the native populations have been like trying to tell them for literally centuries like no yes. this is what happened we know we talk about it we have this like tradition you know and it's funny because you know i get the sense sometimes that you know uh, just like some of the same historians who will, you know, like love these like oral histories about, you know, like the Homers, you know, these kind of things mm. be like, oh, they can tell us something about history. We'll also like discount those same types of oral histories from non-European cultures. And there's this, you know, I mean, very racist, like obviously racist, like double standard and this idea that like, oh, like certain types of oral histories like matter more than others. Um, you know, and I think the same yeah. can also just be true of, you know, again, like an oral history of war versus an oral history of like, you know, women in 17th century France, like you're going to like the same historian might have very different perspectives on like, you know, what oral history means in one case and the other. Yeah. Did you want to move on to talk about artificial people? Yeah, that was, I was just going to actually say that that that's another thing I'm really kind of like interested in here. Cause this is, this is another thing, um, you know, I come at this from very much like more of the like philosophy of mind, like analytic philosophy tradition, which is something that I did actually study. Um, And, but one of those kind of like interesting questions that intersects with this is this idea of, you know, our concept of what the mind is often changes with technology, like whatever the dominant kind of technology information technology paradigm at the time is will often dictate the way we think about the mind. Um, And so in reading one of the, you know, interviews that N.A. Solway gave and how she talked about how Rupetta is not a robot she's a construct and these are like different things. And like, I want you to think about them differently and put yourself in this kind of like, you know, an earlier sort of mindset and an earlier sort of like metaphysics almost. Um, yeah. It's something I'm, I'm really looking forward to. I, I love that kind of, that kind of thing. I think it's really important and like fiction can do a good job of like forcing us to interact with this way that people thought previously by literalizing it. Yeah, and um, and it's really interesting because so um, in researching it, I found out that there is um, an apocryphal tale about um, Descartes. Did mm-hmm. you come across this? I did. Yeah. Um, so yes, yeah, so there's this apocryphal tale about Descartes, which um, which 
um, and he's always talks about in interviews um, about how he had. So in reality, it sounds like he likely did have um, an illegitimate daughter who died of scarlet fever when he was five. And so there's this apocryphal story that turns up first in papers from late um, from the late 17th century um, after he, I think a fair number of years after he died, that he had built um, an automaton replica of his daughter. Um, and this daughter had um, been on a voyage with him to, I think, Sweden. Right. Um, I think it depends on what, what which era of his life they think he built it in. But yeah, so he had this um, ornate kind of automaton replica of his daughter um, and the, the ship's captain or crew went into his cabin and found this mechanical daughter there and was so unnerved by it that they threw it into the ocean um, where, you know, it, was, it, it kind of died um, or, or, or was just kind of discarded and left to, to, to whatever mechanical objects do instead of dying. And so, um, and so N.A. Soy talks about that as a kind of like, um, as, as a kind of animating point for the book, which I find really interesting because um, in the book, it's not, um, it's not Descartes who builds um, Rupetta, who builds a mechanical woman. It's a, it's a young woman. And, um, and she's made in a lot of ways from like feminine craft work. Um, mm -hmm. There's, you know, the, 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 she's made kind of from various materials that, um, that I think are kind of associated with like quote unquote women's work from this period. Um, and, and so I find that really interesting, but there's, but there's just so much like kind of history of automata before, before robots that you don't really think of, mm -hmm. um, or that I didn't really know about. So I'd heard of the mechanical Turk, which was this automaton that could apparently beat chess masters. And it turned out that was like a small man who was a chess master who was <laughs> <Right>. like <laughs> hidden inside the mechanical Turk. Um, but there was also, right. um, so can I swear on this podcast? Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay. So there was also this like digesting duck automaton that could shit. And so <laughs> there was this guy who would like feed the duck and then the duck would do a shit. And it was like this whole big deal. They were like, oh, wow, you've mm. got a mechanical thing that can digest. And I think it was like found like later on, like later generations, it was just like found in a cupboard somewhere. And basically it couldn't digest things. It had like a chamber inside where like the food would go. And then it had a separate chamber where he'd put stuff in to make it. And then, you know, right. Right. The secret button or whatever and then it would like right and just eject. like our persistence of vision would be like oh it you know <laughs> it digested yeah yeah um but um but also like um so i listened to a bbc world service podcast about this i can send you the link to include in the oh, show yeah, notes, please but do. It, it was kind of about the the Descartes daughter um kind of apocryphal tale but there was all this stuff about um in churches, especially Catholic churches and kind of like the late Middle Ages through kind of the early modern period, they would often have automata on display and they'd be like really flashy automata of like devils. So um, oh, if you Google like for like devil automata in churches, you get some really terrifying pictures of like ones <laughs> that survive. But they would also have like Jesus automata that like Jesus on the cross, like moving in various ways. Wow. Um, and apparently it was a thing where Catholic churches had them and Protestants disapproved because it was like idolatry. Right. Um, and um, and and they talk a lot on the... So, so there's a historian on the podcast who talks about like how a lot of, a lot of like the people who were kind of against these automata seem to think that people were, were, weren't able to distinguish between um, these kind of like mechanical, like false images and like right. something that's real. And then, and, and, and this historian, she talks about how, like, 
it, it seems more useful to think about it in terms of people like willingly suspending their disbelief, like choosing to like take pleasure from this kind of thing. Because that's why people liked these things, because they were like novel, because they were like interesting and beautiful. Right. Well, and th- I mean, I feel like that's the kind of like complaint that happens with every like new technology, too. It's like, yeah. oh, people, you know, shouldn't read fiction because they'll mistake fiction for fr- real life. Right. Like that's the whole point of like the earliest novel of Cervantes, mm. uh, Don Quixote is like, oh, reading fiction will, you know, make you think fiction is real life. It's dangerous. Um, you know, and the same goes for like VR type of technology now or video games and people being worried about video game addiction, which is, you know. You know, it's not to say that like people can't use these in maybe unfortunate ways, but but yeah, it's really interesting that, you know, back hundreds of years ago, like we were having these same discussions about like, oh, the the clockwork men are too much like real men, so we shouldn't let people people look at them or they'll get confused about what's real. Um, yeah. Have you I'm curious because uh so I in um in college I studied abroad in Paris and I, I kind of traveled around Europe a little bit. One of the places I went to was, um, I forget the name of the specific town in Switzerland, but it's one of the towns in Switzerland where, um, a lot of these automata were made and I got to like interact with some of them. And I went to a couple of different museums that like showcased these like clockwork people and these different like clockwork, you know, again, like clockwork ducks and clockwork people, um, some like handwriting ones where it's, it was, and this stuff is fascinating because it's all gears and levers, right? Like it's all mechanical. There's nothing like digital or like, you know, what traditionally the way we would think about computation now, where there's some sort of like abstract language between the computation here, all the computation happens in this like very mechanical way. Um, But it was stuff like where you could, you know, type in a series of letters and like a you know little like boy automaton would like handwrite in cursive the like message that you typed out and just like the degree of craftsmanship and like work that went into it was just like mind-blowing and even something you know we talk about like the mechanical turk and like okay like the punchline of the story is always like Oh, but there was actually a person inside. But what we kind of like leave to the side of that was sure there was a person inside, but that person, it wasn't like there was a puppet where he's just controlling the hands playing chess. There was still an entire like clockwork human body created where the person inside could press a button and that, you know, automaton would go down and grab the right chess piece and put it in the right position. Right. And like that alone is fascinating that they put so much time and energy into into this stuff um while still having a very like different perception of what it was than maybe we do of computers now Hmm. yeah no that is really interesting and actually the the hand signature one in particular comes up in the book as well as the duck there's there's an automata again without going into too much detail who at some point all, all this automata can do is write her name Mm-hmm. Um, and that is something that they would have them do um, is like, oh, um, and, and it's kind of amazing to think, yeah, hundreds of years ago, they could build these kind of like intense clockwork um, machines that would kind of give people pleasure by like doing a trick, but like a really complicated and, and kind of amazing one um, where, um, where, you know, a series of clockwork or levers or whatever could make it write its name. Um, I've never been to a museum like that. Um, and the closest I've been to is, so I'm from Suffolk, which is like a 
county in the UK. And there's this weird museum in a town called Cotton um, called the Mechanical Music Museum. And it's got like all these weird mechanical organs. <laughs> and some of those. <laughs> My have, face like... just like lit up. This is fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can send you some incredible photos. But yeah, oh, um, so it's got some like weird organs with like weird mechanisms. Um, and it ha- also had like Charlie Chaplin's cane and hat on display. It's open like one Sunday a month. It was very strange. <laughs> but yeah, but, I mean, people still get pleasure from that kind of thing you know it's right. still fun and creepy i think i think the kind of fun creepiness is is kind of an intrinsic part of it and i think that's part of what's going on in the in the book too um the fact that they that they're kind of enjoyable to see but also kind of terrifying right right yeah it's not quite the uncanny valley it's something more a little bit like it's so different that it's almost alien. Like, you know, that yeah. it's, you know, it's kind of, I feel this way about like octopuses often is that like, they're so intelligent and so unknowable, you know, it's like well, yeah. my cat. Sure. Like, you know, I understand, like it's another mammal. I, I can get what it does and why it does where something like an octopus or a squid, it's like, you know, watching these videos of them, like unlock doors and just sort of like, mm you know, don't really look like they're working towards one specific goal, but like managing those goals anyway. Um, I actually, I was at, like I said, so I, I studied a lot of um, philosophy of mind and that kind of stuff in college. And recently I went to a, um, the, the NYU here in New York does these, um, the philosophy department there does big public conferences every two years. It's actually really cool. It's like they do a big mm. philosophy um um, conference and instead of only inviting academics, they open it up to the public as well. Um, so it is an academic conference that anyone can come to. And the one that they did um, last winter was on um, animal cognition. Um, so mm. I <laughs> went and like listened to every lecture. Uh, and one of the lectures uh, was Peter. I forget the name of the researcher. I'll, I'll link to his stuff in the show notes, but um, he studies octopuses um, and he does, you know, like experiments with octopuses to understand how smart they are. And one of the things that he mentioned kind of like in passing in the very end. And so I emailed with him a little bit back and forth with it afterwards was this idea that, you know, the way he put it was really quickly because he didn't have a lot of time was that, you know, one of the things that it looks like is that, you know, normally octopi, octopodes, I guess, um, they like work kind of in a distributed manner, like their different legs can be doing things on their own and they, they don't have a central nervous system. So like mm. the different parts of their body can be doing their own things on their own time without having to communicate with each other. But in times of stress, and in times of like when it's necessary, the most octopuses can bring all of their attention together and actually begin to focus their attention on one thing. And those disparate parts will actually begin working together. And so one of the things he's looking at is both like the behavioral and also the neural correlates of how that happens, where normally it's like you have, you know, eight different little machines running, but sometimes they can all connect together into like one machine. Mm. And one of the really fascinating things about this is we're very sure that one of the main elements of consciousness as we understand it is just like the more desperate things are working together kind of the more conscious an animal is and so what this suggests is that an octopus can become more or less conscious on demand it's almost like it can 
wake up in this more like philosophical way of like, oh, I need to be conscious because I need to work on one problem now and then I don't need to be anymore and I will yeah. become like more animalistic at that point, um, which is just like kind of fascinating and terrifying a little bit, like an idea of an animal yeah. that like mostly doesn't want to be conscious, but when it needs to be, it will be. <laughs> yeah, God. Um, and that it's really interesting thinking about like how the body relates to consciousness because that's definitely a big strain in the book. Mm -hmm. um, so um, you can read online the um, the speech that um, N.A. Solway gave when um, when she got the Tiptree Award and she talks about a few different things in it, but one of the things she talks about is trying to get rid of an idea of like um, a binary between like your mind and your body and mm -hmm. like... like um, and and so there's a lot about like the ways in which you think through your body um, and your body like creates consciousness um, mm -hmm. and and I think that so I so I've never actually read Frankenstein um, which is like oh. my deepest shame. Um, <laughs> you should read I Frankenstein. Think, <laughs> yes, I will try and read it for the post reads. I think it'd be really interesting to have read when discussing this. But um, but I think it's really interesting to think about like the history of like terrifying um, mechanical people uh, mm -hmm. or beings in science fiction and the way in which their bodies are like really terrifying it's like the, this idea of like a wrong body um coming with a mind that like thinks through it right right yeah and frankenstein is interesting because you know it's less about mechanics and more about biology too and this mm. idea of like you know a body made of like different parts in a way that's more vague in the novel than I think it usually is in the popular conception, but still this idea of like, you know, like almost yeah. like what's artificial and what's not like, where does it's con, you know, a, a major question in the book is like, where does the conscious or the monster's consciousness like come from? And like, why does it feel <laughs> almost? Yeah. Um, yeah, that will, that will actually be really, I haven't read that since college too. I might, I might re skim through parts of it because I think that will be a really interesting, like compare and contrast point um the the earliest science fiction novel in many ways yeah yeah i mean it's interesting because when i was when i was doing my english degree so um it was a very um historical de um degree where you do like um a paper on every period from like old english through to modern day mm -hmm. um, and i somehow avoided doing frankenstein i didn't really write about novels i just wrote about poetry um <laughs> but um which is something that you can basically do at oxford you can just write about poetry and plays if you really don't want to read any novels but um but i did read some early science fiction so it's not really a novel but i did read some margaret cavendish the blazing world which is this mm -hmm. very weird um like even earlier than Frankenstein text about like this weird like utopia like that you can get to through I think it's through the Arctic or through Antarctica um but there's a lot about like different conceptions of like society um but but then Frankenstein is the one that comes out with like not just like remaking society but like remaking the body in this like monstrous terrifying way right right so, yes i need to read it i wish i wish matt were here because i know he's read a lot of this stuff too and would love yeah. to talk about it whereas i'm i'm actually really poorly read in in that era's literature generally um including in the in the genre literature which i feel bad about so I think this is actually a good, you know, there's a couple of other themes that I think we'll dig into in the post read section, but this is kind mm -hmm. of a good sort of like segue into, you know, if folks liked book X, then they might like Rupetta and kind of like talking yeah. about some like similar books. You know, I think, I think Frankenstein, um, you know, I haven't read Rupetta. I have read Frankenstein. I think obviously if that kind of 
you know, stuff is interesting to you. Um, the other thing we've mentioned is sort of like historical fiction generally. Um, you know, I think, I think kind of fits into this, into this, um, world, but like, do you have any other sort of novels or stories or other types of books that maybe, maybe, you know, for folks who are deciding if they want to, if they want to read this, which I hope people do because it's, I know it's very different than what we normally do, but I, I, that's part of what I enjoy about this. And I really like highlighting books that aren't your run of the mill, you know, like white dudes writing about spaceships. Like I love that stuff. I read that all the time, but like there's, there's more out there too. Um, Yeah. Um, So one of the things that I think about a lot in relation to it, and it's partly because this is a writer I think about all the time anyway, is um, I'm just going to wave the book for for, um, Adrian. (laughs) But um, Sophia Samatar's book, Tender, um, it's a collection of short stories rather than a novel. But um, Sophia Samatar is one of my absolute favourite writers. Um, And Tender is a collection of of short stories and it's got a novella in. Um, Mm -hmm. But she often writes about the creation of history. um, And she often writes about fairy tales and queer fairy tales. um, And she often, her stuff is often a bit more playful formally than Rupetta. It's not that Rupetta isn't playful formally because it does jump around through time, but it's not a particularly like unusual novel in format way. Mm Whereas Fierce Samatar's stories will sometimes be like um, epistolary, which is told through letters, right. or there's um, one story which is told as like a school essay with like a kid angrily writing footnotes on it and stuff. Um, <laughs> I love but, that. Was it you uh, and I who were talking about epistolary novels on Twitter recently, or was that someone else who I was talking? Quite possibly, okay, yeah. Okay. Um, I'm a huge fan of that format generally. So I know. I mean, that's another reason why it's really strange that I've never read Frankenstein. It's just, mm-hmm. yeah. Right. Although <laughs> that's so, that's epistolary only. <laughs> There's like two like page long letters, and then the rest of the book is just one letter. I mean, it's not <laughs> told okay, in conversation. Okay. Um, but so Sphere Tamatar's stories I would recommend and a lot of them are available online although obviously I would recommend buying the book it's from mm-hmm. Smallville Press another top indie um, she's got a story called A Girl Who Comes Out of a Chamber at Regular Intervals which is like eight pages long and has an amazing epigraph which is these automata are but vessels for our dreams the wine they hold is the shadow of the future from Safiya Bint Al Jazari. Very cool. But I really love that. Um, so, and it's about an automata, um, from the perspective of an automata, in fact. And then there's um, a story called The Tale of Malaya and Mohub and the White Footed Gazelle, which is um, about kind of fairy tales. Um, there's a story called Ogres of East Africa about someone who is um, kind of cataloging Ogres of East Africa. Um, mm-hmm. And then there's a really great story called. Um, an account of the land of witches, which is kind of different interlocking histories, so different layers. So there's like a slave narrative, and, and this is going to need warnings because it's dealing with slavery. Um, but mm. there's like a slave narrative, and then like, um, and then the slave's kind of master, you know, owner, the guy who enslaved her, right. um, like looking for her. So there's his narrative, then there's her again, and then it kind of continues going, and it ends up in a kind of weird fiction, almost um, annihilation type place. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, anyway, Sophia Samatar. If you like Rupetta, you'll like Sophia Samatar. If you like Sophia Samatar, you may well like Rupetta. <laughs> very cool, very cool. Yeah, another, uh, you know, speaking of short story collections. <laughs> 
when you mentioned Rupetta to me, the very first thing I thought of was um, Ted Chang and his collection, The Stories of Your Life and Others, which um, mm. the titular story from that collection, Story of Your Life, um, was recently turned into Arrival, the, the motion picture, um, which was a phenomenal movie. The story is also really good. Um, but elsewhere in that collection, he has a bunch of stories, which I kind of think of as like almost like metaphysical science fiction, where he'll take an idea from history somewhere and treat it as real. So one of them is... Um, he takes he tells the story of the tower of babel as it would have appeared from like one of the per people working on it but also as it would have appeared like if it actually happened like he takes the story like incredibly seriously and like literalizes it and he does this with um there are a couple of different stories about constructs in there too where he does the same thing including the um the Jewish golem in Prague, this, this kind of like history of this, like, uh, uh, like artificial life of some s sort that was, you know, told about like the Jews in Prague and how they had this golem with them. Um, I don't really know the whole history of that kind of story, but I know there's, there's a long one, but he has a short story about that in it. Um, there's also another story that's, um, doing the same thing, but instead of with a historical time period with, um, with evangelical Christianity. So it's like, what if evangelical Christianity were literally true? Um, and the point that like there are angels everywhere and like, you can know if people go to heaven or hell, like all this stuff is literal and like physical, um, which I, I really like that story cause I, I was raised evangelical. I'm you know obviously not anymore, but it was this, it was really fun to read and be like, Oh yeah, that's, you know, <laughs> that's like my yeah. mom talks still in this kind of, you know, like sort of like, uh, apocalyptic way that, that, that this story like perfectly suggests. So, um, I think his short stories have a lot of that kind of stuff and reminded me immediately of, you know, talking about this, this metaphysical science fiction where you take, uh, kind of like a historical scientific viewpoint and apply that literally and tell a story about that instead of, you know, what science fiction normally does, which is take our current scientific understanding mm. and literalize that instead. Yeah. Yeah, um, I really need to read that. I um, I I worked um, for about a year um, in a call center on minimum wage, um, <laughs> and I went to the um, when when Arrival was out on DVD, they had it there with copies of the of, of a book version of of the stories that was called Arrival. But I was like, right. okay, it's stories of your life stories, right. and it was like four pounds for the DVD with a free book, and I was like, excellent, excellent. <laughs> um, so um, I own the DVD and the book, and you know, so I, I have I keep meaning to read it because I know that Ted Chang is meant to be the best, um, and I've read some of the I, I, I've started the story of the Tower of Babel, so I need to finish it. Right. Yeah, they're fun. Um, they're they're he also has a couple of other um stories available online, including actually including one called Exhalation, which is also about like automaton. Actually, I think that story might be one of the most clear um yeah. ones. I'll I'll include the link to that because that, that's like free, I think, on Lightspeed magazine or something like that. And that's I think my favorite story of his and is also very much about like embodied cognition and like mechanical mm. cognition and these kinds of questions, as well as being about like the heat death of the universe and like some other really heavy stuff. So yeah, <laughs> packs a great. lot into a little novella. Um, yeah. Um, I was just going to say the one other book that I think I would recommend to people uh, that I would recommend this book to fans of because it's got a wider readership um, is Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell by Susanna mm -hmm. Clarke. Mm -hmm. 
which is a fantasy book. Um, I wouldn't try and classify it as, as science fiction at all, but it's um, it's fantasy and alternate history. Um, and it very much deals with history um, in a way that um, as like a kind of material thing, but also it's, it's, so it's like a thousand pages long, right? You have to like really dedicate your life to it for a while. Um, mm -hmm. But it's a book where you read it and you realize um, a good chunk of the way through that the real story is kind of like a secret history that you're seeing play out in the gaps. And Susanna oh, Clark talked about this in, um, I don't know if you know the website Crooked Timber, it's like a website run by various academics, but she did like a seminar there where people wrote small papers on her book and then she answered them. And she talks about this in her answer to the seminar. Um, cool. And yeah, she talks about constructing a story through the gaps and it's kind of like a story from below. Um, mm. But, um, but and, and also she writes very beautifully. Um, and it's kind of like, like a, almost a pastiche or a kind of a faux 19th century novel but it's got more depth than like a true pastiche. Um, but and Drew Petter isn't really a pastiche, but they're both kind of like lush, more like literary prose, mm -hmm. which I which I enjoy. I mean, it's not as flowery as Rupetta. There are times. I mean, I I love the writing in Rupetta, but There are times when I'm like, okay, <laughs> <laughs> lots of apple metaphors. Right. Um, which, oh, I which think I, I think Nike even mentions that in one of her interviews. Like, oh, I tend yeah. to be like, I write very flowery, and I'm always trying to cut it down. So. <laughs> yeah, I think I think it works. I think I think she's mostly got it to a good point. But um, but yeah, um, Susanna Clark is a little bit less so. But but yeah, they're both um. They're both kind of like sweeping uh, historical covering a lot of time period. And right. there's and there's some interesting stuff to do with mechanization in Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norla. It's not the main point. There's um there's um because it's set kind of in the early nineteenth century, there's some interesting stuff about like the um that there's interesting ways of reading the book as um various events in it being in reaction to things like the um in, in in like the real world history we had like the luddites and in mm -hmm. the book we have like um the johannites um who are like reacting to like the, the increasing mechanization of labor and that kind of thing right um, right so yeah very cool i you know that's a book that has been on my to read list essentially since it came out and is yeah but it's always been that problem of like oh do i really want to spend you know uh, really given my reading schedule these days like two months reading nothing but this book <laughs> yeah yeah i um i desperately tried to read it in order to um in order to have read it before the tv series came out in 2015 mm -hmm. um and the good thing that i will say about it is once you get past the first hundred pages which are slow going they're mm -hmm. good but they are slow going you're like oh my god this is so dry once you get past that it's like oh my god it's all, all you're going to want to do is read it. Basically. Oh, okay. Oh, that's good. So, I love I love that kind of thing. I can really get yeah. into that. Actually, one I of the things I was thinking is I have a few Audible credits lying around. I wonder if if, that, if I should try it that way. I think it's like 70 hours long. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm kind of okay. You know, I'm kind of okay with that. I listen to so many podcasts, so maybe yeah. I should like try something else one of these days. Yeah, I mean... Yeah, I mean, I own it on audiobook, but I think I saw the length and was just like, oh, it's going <laughs> to take me for the rest of my life to listen to that again. So, um, <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. It's 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 a great book. I would I would strongly recommend you read it at some point. But um, yeah, cool. It is it is a um, a tome. <laughs> yes, it's it's a commitment <laughs> deciding that you're going to read it. So. 
Yeah. Cool. So I think at this point, is there anything else that our listeners should know going into this book? Um, anything like that that we've kind of so, not hit on? So I didn't really mention, um, we've kind of talked about it in terms of this, but I haven't gone into detail. There's some really interesting and like detailed queer love stories in here, which is something awesome. I look for in a book. Um, so, um, and um, and she's talked in interviews, um, uh, Nike Solway has, about, um, about how the book in part came out of thinking about like, what would a history look like if queer um, relationships or at least lesbian relationships were like kind of normalised and people with that kind of relationship were in power. Power. Hmm. and so there's a lot about that um, and there's also quite a lot about like motherhood um and like different types of motherhood and kind of like fraught and more loving like mother-daughter relationships um which is the kind of thing i think we'd want to talk more about in the post read but i just think it's it's one of those things that doesn't get covered that much in science fiction or mm-hmm. doesn't get talked about maybe as much as it should so i didn't want to go by without saying like by the way this is a queer book with mothers in it um <laughs> that's all i actually didn't know that at all so i'm 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 excited about that that's great yeah i'm i'm glad to know that that's an element too yeah great well you know again charlotte thank you so much for coming on and doing this yeah i'm looking forward to you know sitting down and reading the book here and and doing the post read with you as well um you know i guess for again for the listeners like you they can i we didn't say this um you're at tambourine on twitter that's right Yes, tambourine with a U in it because I'm British. <laughs> exactly, at the British tambourine uh, yeah. on Twitter, and that, so that's how we met each other. Um, and then the Emma Press is the press that you work at. They publish cool yeah. stuff. Yes, and I think we're just the EmmaPress.com. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So again, thank you so much for you know picking this book and and coming on here. I look forward to. The next one, which, so this one will post for us in a couple of weeks. And then a few weeks after that, the next one will post. I don't know the exact details. Our Twitter is at SpectologyPod, and I try to post updated schedules on there because I know at the time a lot better than I do when recording. Um, Yeah, and so um, as usual, you know, thanks to WJ for our music. You can find him on SoundCloud, Noah Bradley at noahbradley.com for our art. Um, we're at Spectology Pod on Twitter or SpectologyPod at gmail.com. Always love reader comments. Uh, you know, if you want to rate, review us on iTunes, that kind of thing, that's also very helpful. Um, yeah, and I hope people read this book and enjoy it because it's cool and interesting and, like, you know, very different for us, like I've been saying, which is, you know, for me, it has always been the point of the podcast of let's try to do as many different things as we can. Um, so I, I've been really looking forward to this for the last few months as we've been talking about doing it so um again charlotte thank you thank you very much for having me oh absolutely my pleasure we will we'll talk to everyone again soon bye now